Please let us stand in the reading of God's word and turn to Exodus 20. Exodus 20, 1 through 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or in likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land, and the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. And trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Now please turn to Matthew five twenty-seven through 30. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes to hell. Please be seated. Thank you, Deacon Van Wingerden. We uh, thank you and Allison and how well you serve this church family. Thank you, brother. I look at my parents and at how much simpler their lives are at the ages of 75, mostly because they haven't marred the landscape with grand-scale deceit. They have this marriage of 50-some years behind them, and it is a monument to success. A few weeks or months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. If you imagine yourself in such a situation, where would you fit in an affair neatly? If you were 75, which would you rather have? Years of steady, if occasionally strained devotion, or something that looks a little bit like the Iraqi city of Fallujah, cratered with spent artillery. See, those words were printed in the New York Times by a lady named Wendy Plump, who had had an affair, 
And if anything, it shows us that you need not be a Christian or a particularly religious person to recognize in the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery as a gracious word from the Lord. That when we go outside of the boundaries of God's design, that we can expect that kind of pain. And today, God in his kindness would have our church family sitting under his word and giving attention to this very important word, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. So we'll begin, much like we did last week, with the sixth, and that is, let's put this positively and say what is uh, really the charge to the church. So uh, behind this is that God's people are to be faithful in marriage. I think a good way to begin our time on this topic is to think in the opening pages of the Bible what you have. So you don't get reading too far until you see the first marriage in history. It's Adam and Eve. And if you notice the way that it's told so wonderfully, miraculously by God, is that the man and the woman are to be mutually edifying. That it's wonderfully depicted as Adam would look around. He said, there's no one here who I can do life and ministry with. Is there someone God might provide? And really the language is God gifts, gifts the woman to the man as a companion to do life and serve God together. That in other words, the husband and the wife the way God has designed marriage are to build each other up, to complement each other, and to really enjoy a, a blissful life together. Now, what happens? Many things at the fall that each of us say no thanks to God, right? It started with Adam and Eve. We don't want your way. We're going to do things ourselves. We cast God aside, and all of us have turned to our own ways selfishly. And what you'll notice, that in what happens as a consequence of our rebellion that immediately there's pressure on the marriage institution. This comes in Genesis in verse th verse, chapter 3, verse 16, that instead of this wonderful relationship where the man and the woman are working together to serve God, that there's now going to be a competition between them, that the temptation will be for the man to dominate his wife and for the woman not to be able to uh, really enjoy that marital relationship. So there's immediately, God sets up the institution. We say no thanks to God. And the first thing that gives way is this wonderful ordered relationship that God set up. In other, set up. In other words, that marriage becomes uh, the battleground, the battleground of what the enemy uses to destroy God's good creation. That's why the uh, famous book by the sociologist Carle Zimmerman, who was many years at Harvard, way back in the 1940s, the title of the book says a lot, Family and Civilization. You lose the family, you lose the civilization. So as Satan would have it, and as a consequence of the fall, that marriage, from the way God designed it, becomes the arena of battle, which is very sad. And what you'll notice, again, you read just those opening pages, you get to, I think, a, a line we don't talk a lot about, but it's a terribly sad line. It's in Genesis 4 and verse 19, as the first families of the earth are getting going, and the line is this, Lemech took two wives. Lemech took two wives. It's very sad. God says there two shall become one flesh, that the goal is oneness and unity, and the husband and wife will build each other up to serve me and enjoy my fellowship. We go our own way, pressure on the marital relationship. Husband and wife are tempted to view each other as enemies, not as companions. And ever since, 
we've gotten it wrong on this level, starting with Lemek as he took two wives. So Christians then have this narrative, right? It's very important to understand the story in which we find ourselves, that God sets up marriage as part of his good design before the fall. There's great pressure on our marriages as a consequence of the fall. And God's calling us back to that ideal, uh, that ideal to, to serve him in oneness. And I would add this. As God's people are called back to monogamous marriage, we should embrace the fact of how unusual this is to the non-believing world. The the comparative literature of the ancient Near East, I mean, be it the the Mesopotamians, the Sumerians, you know, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, it's very clear that a nobleman could have a wife, and that wife would be the one who'd have his children, but it was very fair game to participate in prostitution cults or later to have what we'd call a concubine. In other words, this idea of one man and one woman living together forever was a distinctive of people under the authority of God. And say, I hope that actually, while being very old, the ancient Near East is, is kind of where we find ourselves, isn't it? As a culture to say, well, we believe in staying married to the same person, to be faithful to that person, to, uh, no matter what comes, to allow that vow to keep us. And the onlooking world is saying, those Christians are so strange that their sexual ethics are so very different. And I would say, as hard as that might be for us, this is a wonderful advantage. You're looking at the same world I am. Say a lot of pain when we go outside of God's boundaries. So what I would submit to you is Christian sexual ethics, while being very different to the non-believing world, are not something for us to be ashamed of, but rather something for us to share with others and to put on exhibition because it is for our flourishing. And much more that can be said about that. But the point being is that God's people are called to be faithful in marriage. This is a part of his good design. Part of the consequence of the fall is the tearing apart of husbands and wives, but as we come under God's word and live out this faithfulness that the non-believing world, I think, at the end will be very curious and actually quite, uh, dare I say, attracted uh, to live in the boundaries that God has designed. Now, what is really at stake here? What's the pressure? You say, well, I might you know, know this is true, but why, why does it all go so terribly wrong? And I, I would submit to you, At the core of this is a major problem in our fallen nature, and that is we tend to view uh, sex and marriage from a consumerist perspective. That we view man-woman relationship primarily out of what it gives me. That we take the materialistic mentality of getting things and we apply that to those of the opposite sex. I'll try to marshal some evidence for you without being too explicit, but uh, the first thing I would submit to you is the so-called, well, I just call it locker room talk of young single guys. How do young men talk about sex? What are the slurs, the slang words? And if you in your own mind, you know, say start to think through those, every one of them is really gonna be about conquest and consumption. So you think about that. God sets up man and woman to serve each other, to become one flesh, to do life together. And in our fallen nature, we start to say, okay, really, that's not a a potential companion to serve God, but that's someone to to be conquered, to be had, to be consumed. Can you see that? Say, that's just our normal parlance, that partners are to be consumed. But it doesn't stop there just when we're single. I would say that this creeps into the marriage mentality. 
I get to do a lot of marriage counseling. I very much enjoy. And what you'll have is at some point in that counseling, I'll ask, why are you getting married? Why in the world would you do this? And inevitably, something like this comes out. Well, she makes me a better person. And everyone says, that's, that's lovely, isn't that? That's so, that's so nice. Or you know what? Um, she, uh, you, you know, she makes me feel good about myself. And again, say, wow, isn't that... But I'm shaking, say, that's ultimately self-referential. I'm married to Mallory because she makes me happy. I married Mallory because she brings out the best in me. You see how that's a consumerist mentality of your marriage? I'm doing this insofar as it works out to my self-actualization. So a consumerist mentality can even come into marriage. Now, delicately now, I know these last couple weeks, all delicate, but especially delicate now. How about cohabiting? When I refer to cohabiting, what I'm talking about is a man and a woman living together as if they're married without really being married. This is a relatively new thing on the scene. You know, I'm, I, I like what they, I was born in 1984. They call me a geriatric millennial. Isn't that great? So I'm a, I'm a millennial, but I'm like an, an ancient millennial. I remember when there weren't, you know, computers came in middle school, that kind of thing. I can remember. But uh, this is a relatively new thing. And some of us, you know, are more old school. We can be very negative on this, very judgmental. So you don't live together before you're married. But I would submit to you that what, what's at play is this kind of movement logically. And I think it'll help us both sympathize and, and minister to those who are cohabiting. Those who are my age and younger, who lived together before marriage, the motivation to do that is to prevent divorce. That mine is a generation that witnessed the consequences of no-fault divorce. So you have some 25 to 30-year-olds, and what they're saying is, we saw mom and dad go through a very painful divorce. That was very unpleasant. At all costs, we've got to avoid that because that really hurt. So what we'll do is we'll live together before we're really married so that we can make sure this isn't a mistake and we can avoid the pain that we endure. So the motivation I would submit a lot of times in cohabiting shouldn't cause the church to react with judgment, but rather to say, I'm actually deeply sympathetic to the motivation. And here's, I think, the way in, though is that when you make that move to say, okay, we're going to move in together to see if it works, what have you done? You've made the relationship performative. You've made it test-based. You've made it about consumerism. We're going to see how this goes, and so long as you're doing the things that I like, we can continue to think of marriage, but if there's something you do that I don't really like, well, this relationship is probably terminated. And this goes, you know, again, I just listen to how people talk about these things. The, the one that I always hear a lot say, why are you living together? Something like this will come out. Well, who, who purchases a car without test driving it? And I always reply the same way. I said, that's a fantastic way of looking at it if you think of yourself as the driver. But it ain't all that swell if you're the car. And so you see that cohabiting, really what it's doing, what it's doing is the same thing that I've been... It sets up the relationship on, on performance, inevitably enslaving the other person to say, I'm in this so long as you make me happy, so long as you're you know, kind of ticking the boxes for me. Verse, may I say... The Christian ideal of marriage, which is not based on performance, but it's based on promise by God's help. 
Christians would say, well, in a godly courtship, that you're going to know enough about the person that when it, after your wedding day, you live together, whether or not he or she squeezes the toothpaste at the bottom, middle, or at the top is not ideal, but whether the person makes the bed or doesn't make the bed or anything else you think you could figure out by living together that you couldn't gather in a courtship doesn't matter because your relationship is anchored in promise, not performance. So it's major, a major distinctive, I think, of Christian relationships to say that it's anchored with the aid of God's help and promise, uh, in, in promise rather than a consumerist view where I'm expecting the other person to perform to make me happy. And you see, friends, that this, again, is not something that we Christians should be ashamed of, but rather something we should explain gently to people, say, I know you want to avoid divorce, I know you think there's finances, but let me tell you what you're really doing. You're really enslaving your spouse to perform a certain way to make you happy. Don't you think it might be better to anchor your relationship in a promise to always love, knowing that all of us at times will let each other down, that no spouse is going to perfectly, no, no potential spouse will perfectly fulfill us. So that's the tension. The tension in the culture is I tend to view people to be consumed, to make me happy, instead of something that God has gifted me in order to serve him. Now again, we're looking at this commandment, shall not commit adultery. And I go here now, to, again, this is, delicate territory the wendy plump article in the new york times i just want us to now god in his kindness would have us think through this friends physical adultery let's not hold anything back causes great pain you notice both in the proverb that we read coming off the proverbs on adultery Read St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, when you use your body outside of God's design, you do damage to yourself. It's something the Bible's always gotten right against Platonism. You know, we have generous say, well, I can do whatever I want with my body and use it anyway. I will yoke myself to this and yoke myself to that, and it's gonna, not going to affect me emotionally and psychologically. Say, so that's pretty much out the window, scientifically and experientially, that the way that I use my body is going to affect my mental well-being and we can be assured that when we go outside of God's design, especially as those sitting under his word or having some uh, effort, you know, some, some meaning at least here today to make an attempt to sit under God's word, that we can expect great pain in our minds and in our lives. Not to mention the spouse who was, let's say, the non-cheating spouse, that what that does, you take a moment to pause and to say, man, a lot of pain a lot of pain in adultery non-christian or christian how about generational problems you say 12 years of ministry you get to meet with a lot of people met with a lot of men in my life <laughs> you think any one of them says now say you know when i was 13 and dad ran off with somebody else that was fantastic that was that was no that was great when mom started doing whatever she was doing, some colleague at work. You know, that felt really good. That was great for our friends, you know. It's very, very painful for children. You see, what you're doing in a Christian marriage that is built not on your own happiness or your own consumption, but it's built on promise, what you're showing young people that in this painful and complex world with a lot going on that unconditional love by god's help is possible that there's security in what god gives today the whole world can give way but this is anchored in something real 
And when we throw that out, how very painful it is for the next generation to come up. And, you know, lots of stories I could tell. I remember some years ago, there's a guy comes in, he's boasting about his conquests, he's married. And, you know, he really wasn't uh, taking the, seri- the gravity of the situation. And I said, I asked two questions. I knew he had a little daughter. I said, how would you feel if your daughter marries a guy like you? Tears started to flow. Follow-up question. If your little daughter marries a guy who treats her like you treat her mother, what would you think about that? Tears flow. Lots of pain. God in his kindness today says, look, I've given the parameters for your well-being and for my glory. I don't know where you're at today, but God in his timing would have us think about this. Pain to ourselves, pain to our spouse, pain to our children. How about societal pressures? Very costly financially to do something like this. I mean, I just, I, I'm stunned actually at this kind of thing. Maybe I, I hope this isn't a, an opinion, but I, I, you know, well, it doesn't, you know, the government, you know, the government will take care of the fallout. I mean, I know this is very, very complicated, but the, the, my children are gonna be compensated because the government can write a check. Government might send money. Government can't play ball with your boy. Government can't teach your boy how to tie his necktie. Government can't sit down Indian style and have a tea party with your daughter. Government can't attend your daughter's ballet concert. You get the idea. Societal pressures, emotional problems. Is it really worth it? Or can we see that in this seventh commandment, the mercy of God to his church to say, by all means, be faithful in marriage. It's a part of his good design. Word here for those who, of you who are married, or I'm sorry, single, you're, you're here today, you're single, you're like, you know, this is two out of 10 commandments or two out of seven so far. They're really about the family. There's a line that Josh McDowell, I got from Josh McDowell. It's one of those you say, either this is incredibly wise or it makes no sense of all, at all. And I've come down on the, on the side that this is incredibly wise. And what Josh McDowell said to us young bucks was this. He says, you don't need to be married to be faithful to your spouse. Say, wow, wish I would have had that even a little bit earlier in life. That maybe one day you want to get married. And you're thinking, well, you know, adultery is if you're married, so I can, you know, fornicate, do whatever I want to say, is that really uh, what's being permitted here? Or is God saying, no, if you believe God can orchestrate marriage and one day you might like to be married, then faithfulness starts today because ultimately, as we'll see, marriage points forward to, to something else. So I would say if you're single, remember faithfulness is still, still crucial. And more so, as I argued with the fifth commandment, that this is about a culture in the church. It's a culture of honoring your father and mother. It's a culture of marital fidelity. It's a culture of saying, yeah, Christian sexual ethics are different, but this will will ultimately win the day and give God the glory. So point being, God's people are to be faithful in marriage. It's part of his good design. It's how he, he uses marriage to build his kingdom. So that brings us to bold heading two there. Marriage is an illustration of our relationship to God. That this is a theme. The Bible is replete with this theme. Take, for example, way back in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7. We talked about this when God is establishing his covenant. You remember this line, I will take you to be my people. God says that to the people. 
And you say, well, that sounds a lot like something we do now. I will take you to be my people. It's very much like a marriage vow. It's exactly what happens in a Christian marriage. I will take you to be my husband. I will take you to be my wife. God says, I will take you to be my people. And this theme of God's people with him being in a marriage together, in a marriage covenant, runs all through the Bible. Just read the book of Hosea. Read the opening of Micah. That God and his people are in a marriage, so our marriages then, Christian marriages, become a walking illustration of that promise, that you're on display. You know, whether you like it or not as you're married, you two go together. So wherever you go and how you treat, you're putting your faith on display. Say, listen to this. This is Paul, Ephesians 5 and verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to, and then you have an expectation if you stop there. Say, the expectation is the reader, this refers to marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and I'm speaking of a great mystery, and the mystery that I'm talking about is Christ and the church. Paul makes it explicit for us. When a Christian man and woman come together, and they do oneness together, when they go back to the design of God to serve him mutually as companions, building each other up, then we're giving a living illustration to the onlooking world of what it means to have Jesus as king. Say so deep in the Christian tradition is this. I wanted to draw on the Book of Common Prayer. This is Cranmer, who was uh, burned at the stake in 1556, but the 1662 version, which is largely Cranmer and largely preserved today. Listen to how the marriage ceremony opens. You've heard some of this. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate, instituted of God in the time of man's innocency, before the fall, signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and the church. Human marriage signifies to the church and to the non-believing world Jesus's unconditional love for those who are his. So again, is this commandment just about avoiding pain? Though that it certainly does, as we've argued. Say it's certainly about that. Is it for all the other goods that come with a faithful marriage? Uh, humanly speaking, absolutely. But far more important, what is at stake in marriage faithfulness is that we're representing what God has done in Jesus. Marriage becomes the arena in which we most obviously live out our faith. I know you know this, but I should say it again. I can fake, I can fake all of this to you. We see each other 25, maybe today 35, if you would permit me. I'm up here, you're the 35 minutes a week. I can talk about this stuff. I can forgive you if, you know, something goes terribly wrong in the lobby after the service, I'm sure that I can. You know where I can't fake it? With Mallory. You know where I can't hide stuff? With her. Forgiveness is just not, well, I can find myself to do it after church. Forgiveness becomes a lifestyle in a marriage. 
And you think forgiveness, where is forgiveness being taught? I mean, does any secular literature really have any kind of moral pinning for forgiveness? No, say this is a Judeo-Christian distinctive of forgiveness. And if you were at the marriage conference, really enjoyed being there with many of you, you remember the last session. What was the last session on? Forgiveness. We talked about conflict and communication and sexual sin and all the things couples do. And Jonathan, helpfully, right, he says at the end, he says, the, for the Christian, what, what really makes this is, is forgiveness. You recognize how much you've been forgiven in Jesus, and you practice that in your marriage so that the love and grace shown to us can be put on display. And when we do that, friends, I don't think it's, I don't think it's lost on others. Look at how gracious that couple is to one another. Look at the kindness. Why, they speak to each other with such kindness. Gosh, I know there were some real pressures in that marriage, but they've worked through them. Boy, I wish we had that. What's different about them? What do they have that we don't have? And the couple will say, well, we've been forgiven much, so we forgive much. So that's the point. So God's people are faithful in marriage, not just about the avoidance of pain, but marriage becomes an illustration, a walking example of our relationship with God and thirdly, much as was the case last week, we see that adultery is really a matter of the heart. If we flip to that second passage, listen to Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Where is he going to? Exodus 20 and verse 14. Jesus is giving us his commentary on the Ten Commandments. You say, this trumps everything, right? Jesus says, this is what this means. In the most famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount, this is what God was doing here. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You say, what do we do with that? I will presume that what Jesus is establishing here is the universality of sexual sin. That all of us have been unfaithful in this area and that all of us need the grace and kindness of God. So I don't want, just as last week, to say, well, is Jesus saying, you know, real physical adultery is the same thing of lust in the heart that's private? I mean, are those, you know, equal on the... So say, no, I mean, clearly one is more damaging to... Uh, life than the other, but what he's saying is, is the, the point being you shouldn't judge another person's sin before you look at your own heart. So what do we do? Look at that adulterer over there. What a terrible man. Or last week, look at that hateful, you know, that person who does youth, you know, loves euthanasia and abortion. I stand in judgment over them. Jesus says, no, no, no. Look in your own heart. What's your heart like? Don't we see we need him? That we've looked out for ourselves more than our spouses. And that's why we, even the most mature Christians, we have to be very careful because of our bent towards sexual sin. I'll read a quote to you, by the way, this man. It's in your notes, Gary Shriver. He was a pastor. Listen to what he says. I never really thought I was a prime candidate for adultery. I was committed to our marriage, and I didn't think I was what you would call high risk. So how did I get here? The best description I ever heard was, quote, baby steps. I let myself get into an intimate relationship with another female. Few people wake up in the morning and say, today's the day I really want to bring great damage to my marriage and my family. Rather, we move incrementally. You see how this happens? Maybe a guy, been married 15 years, 
has a number of kids and his life's a little bit chaotic and all he's doing is running the kids to different sports and his feels like his wife is just a roommate and she's ignoring him and it's not like it used to be and slinks down into his basement where his office is goes on social media finds one of those old high school flames say maybe Maybe if I had just went a different route those 15 years ago, maybe I wouldn't have the stress that I have today. Maybe I'll just open my chat box and see how she's doing. Let her know that I'm thinking about her. That's how it starts. Can imagine the businesswoman. Husband's put on a few pounds. Say he's lost some hair, you know, or sign of wisdom, I'm told, but nevertheless, his body has changed doesn't do the fun social things he used to do, rather stay at home, he's a little bit boring. You got a business trip coming up. There's a colleague that's also been chosen to go on that trip and deep down you're quite excited he's going. And maybe you're just thinking ahead, how can I arrange things where maybe we could get some time alone or maybe have an excuse to talk about business over a meal. See, much more likely than waking up and saying, today I'm gonna do this, is the incremental slide into a mindset and a heart condition of thinking about our own satisfaction rather than promise anchored in what God does in our lives. Let's end here with a few practical examples, and they'll take those from Jesus. You have a look again at Matthew 5. What's this language, right? If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. He's not speaking literally here. What he's saying is, when there's a source of sin in your life, take drastic though painful action to prevent yourself from a lot more pain down the, down the road. You can think of how this might look for you. Say maybe from now on, no, no screens in bedrooms. Screens go in the kitchen. Maybe for others, it's no more social media. Yeah, but I like social media. It's how I find out what's going on. Yes, but if it's causing you to sin, take the measures. Well, God bless it. Well, you edify your marriage as you obey him. For others, how about our peer desire ministry? I've been so thankful for that ministry here. The, the, uh, Tuesday nights, you might be saying, yeah, but I, I've got a problem in this area. It definitely you know, falls into Jesus' definition of being unfaithful, but I can't give up Tuesday nights. You say, oh, you'd be very wise to go on Tuesday nights to join the fellowship on that, to see how pervasive it is, that it affects every one of us, these sexual sins, right? It's not isolated to to middle-aged businessmen. You say, well, is pornography really an issue for, yeah, until you look over and you see your three teenage daughters and reason that they're gonna be married someday, and you're thinking about what kind of men they're gonna be married. See, all of us are affected by these kinds of things, and Jesus is saying, think about your life, set up protective boundaries, because this is wise, and this will give you a marriage that thrives. Friends, I hope something today, I hope I don't come off as judgmental. The movement in sermons is always twofold. I try to humble the sinner and exalt the Savior. That's really the movement. Humble the sinner and exalt the Savior. What we've seen today is in the quiet of our hearts, if we really think about this teaching, what we ought to be saying is, you know what? I've sinned sexually. I've been outside of God's boundaries. I'm humbled. I need help from the outside. But Jesus is great, and we all need him. Maybe you're here today. You have a scarlet letter on your chest, so to speak, right? Hawthorne, the A for adultery. 
You're thinking, I really, I've been unfaithful to my spouse. I have no idea what to do. I've caused so much pain for my children, my loved ones. I followed the lusts of my flesh rather than the commitments of my mind and to my Lord. There's very good news for you today that God has acted in Jesus for sinners like us. He's put forth his son to say, you think this is just, you know, funny. No, I put forth Jesus knowing that in our rebellion that we needed him. And that as we would surrender to Jesus and confess our sins and to say, Lord, I have blown it. I've been an imperfect spouse. I need you. I repent of my sin. Make me whole. Say the blood of Jesus prevails for you today. And I do pray you wouldn't wait one more hour to surrender your life to Jesus and to find the wholeness in him to find the one man who can preach the sermon like this. The one guy who can deliver this sermon without any bit of hypocrisy and without any bit of unjust judgment, the Lord Jesus. And he says, come to me. I gave, your I gave my life for you. Come to me. You can be whole. I can restore you and give back what the locusts ate away. And I'll use you to my purposes to point the non-believing world to the way home. So friends, we end not on a note of judgment, but on a note of we're humbled. But Jesus is a great savior. And for our marriages to be strong and whole, he's gotta be the linchpin and the focus. May we honor him in all areas of our life and especially today as we think about the marriage institution. Ian, I'll invite you and the team back up. Father, thank you for your word. It's a hard teaching. But I pray that for those of us who are going on that business trip or have crossed the line in chat rooms or have been doing things on screens today, as a, we, we receive today as an act of grace. Thank you for helping us think about this, to make changes, to avoid not just consequences here earthly, but long-term, eternal. Lord, help us to heed your word, to behave with your wisdom. Lord, as a church, may we not be ashamed of this, but to realize in this is life and confidence and in a world of unkept commitments and selfishness that marriage is an opportunity for us to show that you make a difference, that love is possible. For those, Lord, who've had real struggles in this area, help them to see the forgiveness of Christ, that they can be made whole, that he is a great savior, that we all need him. And so we surrender this to you. Help it sink in for Christ's greater glory. Amen.